And so it's really about if we're going to walk through this, how do we walk through this in an emotionally supportive way rather than a judgmental, critical way? Because when there's guilt and shame, the history remains the same. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased and delighted that you are back for another week. This week, we are talking to David Jetson, who's a counselor and financial therapist. Before we get into this episode, if you can please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. These reviews help us get guests like David on the show, and it lets us know if you're enjoying the conversations that we are having on a weekly basis. Also, if you have an episode that you think a friend, family, or colleague would like, if you could email it to them, that would be wonderful. Now, on to the show. Dave is a counselor and financial therapist. He is one of the forerunners in this world of financial therapy, as he's started doing this work a long time ago with a friend of the show's, Rick Kaler. The two of them got together and started really having insightful conversations around how therapy can help clients in a financial context. Dave is an international and national speaker. He consistently develops workshops and he's also an author. Dave uses intuitive experiential therapy to help clients deal through their past emotional traumas and feelings, especially around money. In this episode, we talk about what is financial therapy? Sometimes this term seems daunting or it might seem like it's a deficit-based word. However, Dave's perspective and working definition of financial therapy really shows that financial therapy can and is available to everyone. Dave talks about how we all have an emotional history around money And for most of us, it is negatively impacting us in the present. And financial therapy seeks to help clients understand those behaviors that are unconscious to ourselves so that we can change the outcomes to things that we perceive are important. It involves uncovering the emotional truth that we have attached to money, most of which was developed when we were from zero to five years old Despite we have very limited memories from zero to five years old, those lived experiences, especially around money, are really unconsciously driving our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs around money. Financial therapy allows us to examine without judgment how these beliefs are impacting us today so that we can rewire them and create the outcomes that we actually intend to have. As Dave mentions in this episode, when we're working with a financial therapist, it helps us zoom out of the situation that we're in so that we can see the bigger picture. Often when we're in situations, we are so ingrained in them that we don't actually see the bigger picture. Having a third party, someone who actually listens to seek to understand us, allows us to move from being the situation to observing the situation where we can make meaningful changes. 
This was a great conversation. I really felt a connection with Dave and I, and perhaps that's because he's a therapist and that's his job. But Dave, thank you so much for this conversation. To find more about Dave, he talks about his website. The links are in the show notes. And his book, Finding Emotional Freedom, is really good. I suggest you get a copy. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dave Jetson. Dave, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, as I was reading that, it said you can read body language. And I realized as I was going through that bio, I was like, oh, shoot, I hope I'm saying this right. So I don't know if you read my body language. I was tense, but I was. (laughs) I noticed in one part you hesitated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Reading bios. Anyhow, so many areas I'd like to start, but I thought I would start with In your book, at the start of your book, you have some blurbs from individuals who read the book to speak about you and your experience. And I thought we'd start with something that Rick Kaler was quoted at the start of your book. Rick has been a guest on the show, and I really hold Rick's work with high regard. So he says, Dave Jetson is one of those rare guides who's actually done and succeeded at what he teaches. I credit much of my success to learning from mentors who, like Dave, don't merely teach theory, but share what actually has worked for them. He is one of those who walks the walk. I bring this up because in this day and age with social media, people proclaiming certain things online, it seems like we're really good at talking. But as Rick says about you, we don't always walk the walk. Mm -hmm. I would agree. For you, how important has it been to do the work as a therapist so that you can build those relationships that your clients are looking for when they come to see you? I would not be a therapist today if I hadn't done my own work. So when I say it's critical, it's very critical. When I ask my clients to consider doing something, if I haven't done it myself or I'm unwilling to do it, I do not recommend it because I think it's really important that I understand the value and, and the whole process of it. And so with that, I have lots of money invested in my own recovery and in the process of understanding myself and understanding how I interact has been critical. You mentioned about body language. I, I share with people, I'm actually getting ready to do a training in Arizona next week on body language. And one of the things that I, I will be sharing and I do share with people is, is that Everybody can read body language. The more of your own emotional history that you have walked through, the deeper you can read the body language in someone else. Mm. You know, you said something that really stuck out to me is understanding myself is what you said. And why I think that's important is as we've gone on this journey through my podcast, looking at the deeper side of money, what I mean that is our relationship with our emotions and our feelings. When you see clients or through research, when you see clients who aspire to do something, but we continuously, I don't want to say fail, but maybe we don't implement these desired goals. It could be like, I want to save this much or buy this much. When we fail to look at what's underneath, and to quote you again, to understand myself, do you think we can make 
meaningful, sustainable, second order change, you know, that change that is really important in our lives. Do you think based on your experience, is it possible to make those type of changes without understanding myself? You can't do it without understanding yourself. I will tell you that I have been able to make the changes in my own life. I'm living proof that there is a way. I have not found any way to do it where you do not connect with your emotional truth and really connect with the core of who you are. Without going to the emotions, you can modify behaviors like Bessel van der Kolk, premier research and promises. With talk therapy, you can make minor changes, but to really make core lasting changes, you have to get into the subconscious, into the emotions and reset those feelings. That's where the change occurs. That's a deeper process. Most people don't want to do that. And the talk that I was planning on giving at FTA this a few weeks ago was going to address that piece is, you know, that what I mean by that, many people that go for financial planning don't look at the emotional piece. They go in and so they want to do financial therapy in the financial planner's office. What I have found is we have to create workarounds because they're not ready to go or willing to go to the emotional side. And so we understand what are the emotional obstacles and we work on creating emotional workarounds. When people come in for financial therapy from the counseling office perspective, they're actually looking at the emotion and they want to emotionally understand the money. And so that's where we can go deeper as a typical experience. Mm. So, I mean, it sounds a lot like meeting people where they're at is I can't force someone to go deep. Well said. And, and so maybe talk about these workarounds. And I'm curious because as a financial planner myself, who's dipping his toes into the, the inner side of money, my general experience is the clients that I see certainly aren't ready to go into the deeper side of the relationship with money. But now I can see more and more of potentially how it can benefit them, but I don't want to impart my views on them and say, you better do this work. These workarounds, how do you... And I don't know, because you don't work with financial planning, just financial client, planning clients, but say we're encountered with someone who we could see could benefit doing this work, but they're unaware that they're living this unexamined life. What are these workarounds? Well, I used to be the financial therapist for Rick Kaler. So I work with a number. Okay, of, good. Yeah. So I do have some personal experience. What I found is, is workarounds is actually listening and finding where the emotional obstacles are. An example is a client who inherited a lot of money after his parents died. He couldn't spend it because he said he didn't earn it. And so the workaround was creating ways that he could see that he could use the money. You know, understanding it's not his money, but it's about using it in a fruitful way that would actually benefit him and his parents. So that would be an example of a workaround. Another workaround, I've worked with a number of people where, where they're getting ready to retire. And what happens is, is their whole identity is tied up in, in their work. And so they're going to get lost. And if they stop working, how do they see that they still can live and survive? And so the workaround there would be to help them get into volunteer work, things of that nature, so that they still feel that they have a useful purpose, their income is just coming from a different direction. And then I assume those workarounds might slowly maybe 
tenderize them to be more open if they so choose to go deeper to find out why the deeper level what 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 emotional blocks are creating those right those thoughts so i've been really interested in human behavior change lately and and around our money because we've introduced this thing called money to humans and you know we we don't always get it right and it seems like a lot of this comes down to understanding ourselves, examining the unexamined parts of us so we can understand why we might resist change or why we resist leaning into that discomfort of change we were just talking about. You facilitated many workshops. I was looking at all the different workshops that you've created, so many different presentations, and I don't know how many clients you've worked at in your lifetime, but I can imagine many, many. And I'm asking this question based on the breadth of experience too, where you've done trauma work, emotional truth, financial therapy, psychology of money, negative self-talk. So, so many different facets. But when you zoom out and just look at what all of these clients are, are trying to do, does it all come down to kind of the same ideas of understanding ourselves so that we can make these, make these changes, whatever the, the outer issue is? If you want to really get into the real issue, the real issue is everything that we do is based upon our emotional history. What's interesting is the crux that I have found in working with my own self and with others is our emotional truth. We've been taught to hide our emotional truth. And when we do that, we hide our natural defense mechanisms and our natural way of interacting. When that happens, what it does, it creates everything askew. That's what creates all the issues ultimately. And so it's really about if we want to dig into the issues, it's really about how do I get back to the emotional truth and understand the emotional patterns that have negatively impacted my present because they haven't been resolved. And so that's that's a deeper piece, but that's consistently what I have found and when we work, I work with clients and we go deep enough, it isn't necessarily about the memories that is important in order to work through the change. It's about the feelings because many people that I work with have absolutely no memories of what really happened, but their body will speak. I mean, when I work with them deep enough, they can get what we call body memories where the body will actually react and reenact the situation even though they have no memory of it. In that, we're looking at walking through those feelings and emotions to reset because it's those feelings and emotions that get wired into the brain, if you will. And so with the way the brain is wired, it automatically is going to go to what it's used to going to. And so I'm used to this pattern. I'm used to this message. I'm used to this criticalness. I'm going to continue to do that. The only way to work through that is to go into the subconscious and really take the time to feel those feelings to create a, a change. But that's deep, dark, scary, and discomforts there. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> Going through your book, you openly share your story. I believe it was 29 years old. I, I can't remember exactly, but you decided to start to lean into some of that discomfort. So maybe if you don't mind sharing, as you did in your book, why or maybe not why is that certainly wasn't one tipping point, but what allowed you at that age, if it is 29, to start leaning into those deep, dark discomforts, to start to look at that subconscious, this unconsciously held beliefs you had in your subconscious? 
Well, I was giving a talk with my wife at the time to some seniors at a high school locally. I don't remember what the talk is now. It's been too long ago. But by the end of the talk, these students got me to admit that maybe I was abused a little bit. Mm. I always felt sad and sorry about listening to the stories about how these kids were always abused, you know, because I never saw me as that. Because when we live a situation, we can't see the full fullness of it. And I think that's what's really important to recognize is the patterns that we live in really dictate our life and we are unable to see them because they're just so much part of our life. And so these students actually gave me some, shed some light on it. And that along with our youngest daughter was a twin and they're born three months premature. It just was too much emotional when everybody abandoned us for two years because they're afraid that my daughter would get sick. So it was like an emotional abandonment. It put me into a depressive state. It says, I got to do something different. So that was a catalyst, if you will, that got me on the path of emotional recovery. And for those of you who haven't read the book, when you say a little bit of physical trauma, you you quite openly share that a little bit might be a exaggeration, but what I'm what, not exaggeration, but it was a little bit more than a little bit. Well, I I will just say from the perspective to give your audience an idea, I've had three surgeries directly related to my childhood abuse. My front teeth are all false. I had a stretched capsule that I had to have repaired. I've had total hip replacement because of the child abuse that I received. I don't need to go into details, Mm -hmm. but it paints a picture. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate how you explained in the book, you share that as a way to connect with the, with the readers and your clients. So when I, when I'm hearing your story, that moment kind of shifted you to those two that you just explained, shifted you into starting to do the, the difficult work that, that you deemed required. When you meet patients or clients or people listening, if we know that there's some work that like, you know, there might be a breadcrumb of like, okay, there's something here, but I'm scared of it. What would you say to people who are trying to dip their toe in, but they maybe didn't have that catalyst event that's like throwing them into it to deal with it, but they're, they're, they're trying to dip in, but it gets scary. <laughs> so I guess they're curious about going in there, but nothing's forcing them to stay. Sure. I invite people when they're feeling that, number one, to pray to, for guidance, because it's going to be a deeper discussion and a deeper issue. And then getting into our higher power, if you will, and that sort of thing is going to be a real important piece. I've worked with people who believe in God and not believe in God. But at the end of the day, when they actually get to the work and actually go there, they become believers. Okay? Because going there, you can't go there on your own, mm-hmm. for starters. The other thing is to interview the therapist. As a therapist, I can take you only deep as deep as I've gone myself. If I have not dealt with my own issues, my own history is going to impede your recovery. And so this is where I think it's that's a real important piece. And then it's really about how do we create a level of safety? Because it is scary. And if we don't feel safe, we're not going to go there. 
Okay. And so that's really working with the therapist and that sort of thing and putting things in place to create the safety. One of the things that I do with many of my clients when they first come in is offer them a blanket to put on their lap. You'll be surprised if you try that with your clients, how it shifts things for many and that sort of thing. And it actually allows the conversation to go. The other thing is, is as a therapist, what I do is try to walk where the client is at and attempt to help them feel seen and heard. Because if they do not feel seen or heard, they're not going to open the door. The final piece that I, I always encourage is I say, go for the full kahuna. Don't hold anything back because the the more intensity you have and that, that you're able to share, the greater the release, the greater the change. And so that's what I have found are really important pieces. You said something a little bit ago, when we live in a situation, we can't see the bigger picture. And as you explain that experience, interviewing the therapist who feels that trust, I can imagine that ability to make people feel seen and heard is really when things start to start to change is that they actually start to feel change or seen when you work with your financial therapy clients. And I do want to get into your perspective, uh, like what is financial therapy? Cause it's such a relatively new field, but um, something that when I started getting into this whole field is through the Klontz's course, a lot of interact or interventions. And I realized that I had a completely unexamined life that made me feel examined. I learned so much about, about myself. And one was a character I call now Mr. Shy, which was my inner critic. As a kid, I was super shy. I avoided using my voice because I felt like people wouldn't take me seriously. So I just didn't say anything. Through making money as a kid, going to university for business, and believe it or not, I'm Canadian, and hockey players up here are the end-all be-all, and I see them make so much money, and they like have cameras and nice houses, they're smiling, so I attributed money to happiness and power. So I, I just went on this pursuit of money mission, hence I could become a financial planner. Uh, and doing this work, I, I felt like I, I was able to see Mr. Shy and hear him, and it really started to make sense and unravel a whole bunch of my hidden beliefs and patterns. So when you work with your clients, how often do you see these inner inner child, this inner critic, whatever, whatever you want to call it, show up in the relationship with money? All the time. All the time. Everybody? <laughs> with everybody, unless they've done their emotional work and they've actually worked through the issues, you're going to find this is going to be in some way, shape, or form their, their path. Everything that we do is based upon how we were taught it. Most of the patterns that we do we're taught basically in the first 1,500 days of our life, five years. I like to round it up because it's easier math. That's 36,000 hours. How many of those hours do you remember? It's 2.2 million minutes. How many of those minutes do you remember? It's over 160 million seconds. How many of those seconds do you remember? Now, I share that because for a lot of the work that I do, when we really go deep into it, we're looking at that time frame. And when we look at that time frame, people really don't have it. Yet, how much of our behaviors and beliefs and thoughts does it impact? All of them. And what's interesting is if we have unresolved feelings from that time frame, we're not even aware that it exists. And so what happens is, is that in that whole process, I'm making decisions subconsciously 
that my conscious isn't even aware of around finances that can negatively impact my decision process. So you said if we have unresolved, and earlier you mentioned like everybody has this relationship with their inner critic and the relationship with money. But when you say if we have unresolved, so without examining how our inner critic might be relating to money, can we resolve it? Like, sorry, without examining and doing some work, is it able, are we able to function? You can function to, to the degree that this piece is not impacting your decision. So that's why some people can be very successful, but you know, the, it's really by definition, what is success? If I'm a workaholic and I'm making all this money, is that what success when I have no relationship with my family? Mm-hmm. Is me having a relationship with my family and not having money, you know, a success as well. Everyone's success is a different thing. What I consistently find when I work with people is I like to use the term financial codependency, mm. which is a crux that, that really impacts every financial decision. How do I interact with money in a way that is really based upon how I perceive the money with others and, and that sort of thing? It's interesting. I, an example I like to use is, is a couple that I worked with and the wife was saying, you know, my husband just spends all kinds of money on himself. And he says, no, I don't. And in looking at it, she was right. He was. And yet he was right too, from his perspective. Because what he did is he never saw him spending money on himself. He always had to come up with a logical explanation why it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't on himself. And this is where, you know, many people say, you know, spending money on himself. Well, self would be like self-recovery. I'll just tell you that a lot of people will spend money on lots of things. But when it comes to therapy, uh-uh, mm-hmm. because that's where I matter. And, and that's the difference. And when people dig in deep enough, that's the piece that they don't really recognize is the mattering piece. Mm-hmm. But yet... I can assume once they feel that mattering, everything changes. Yes, it does. So let's go to financial therapy. I've interviewed several people who are in the realm of financial therapy on the podcast. But you, looking at you and your story, you really have been diving into this realm for many, many years. As, As I mentioned, it's a relatively newer field, and you've been one of those forerunners who started navigating what this field is. So according to to Dave and the work you've done, what is financial therapy and how does it help us with our our finances? I appreciate you saying that there are many definitions out there because there are. And, and when I work with people around financial therapy, basically what I am, the, is the goal is to understand the emotional history that's negatively impacting the present and working through the emotional history in order to create a greater financial success for the client from what they perceive is going to be a financial success. Because I think that's a really important piece because my definition and yours may be very different. And so it's really about understanding it. What I like to do, I mean, what I see is is how am I specifically helping the client achieve their financial goals? Mm-hmm. I like to use 
an example, and this is one of the things many financial planners have these, or therapists have these wonderful definitions. But the question that I continually ask is, what's the outcome? How is it changing? And I work with people that have really no money, and I work with millionaires on, on this. So what I've I have found that both have their own emotional obstacles. You know, they all do. I like to use this one example of this lady who, when I first came in, she had huge debt. She was only making $15 an hour. She was really struggling. I'm not a financial planner, so I don't get into the financial planning side. She didn't make enough money to go to a financial planner. All I did was work on the emotions of every spending decision that she had associated with money on her spending plan. In the course of that, we looked at the emotions and we shifted her spending to the point after a few years, she actually got her debt paid off. On her own? On her own. She not only did that, but since then, she's been able to buy a car and have it paid off. She's actually been able to put money into the savings account. I worked with this group of people. When I first met them, they were struggling with finances and that type of thing. It was interesting. They were also struggling with relationships. In working with the emotions associated with these underlying feelings, we're actually able to help them work through the emotional issues on getting into relationships. Today, all of those, that group is married and has a family. All of that, that group has tripled to created five times the income today than what they did when I started. Today, none of the, I mean, when I first started with them, none of them were at the, the level of getting into a financial planner or, or, or a retirement. Today, they are. To me, that's financial therapy. It's actually making a difference in how they interact with money because we walk through the emotions so they can actually see what they're And I can imagine, you know, you mentioned they tripled their income. Now they're working to retirement, but I don't know if it's equally important. It doesn't matter which one's more important, but I bet they just have a, the heaviness around money lifted off their chest too, that you can't put a number or on the balance sheet for that. But I, I feel like that's a huge part that's hard to sure. track. Well, well, one of the things, I mean, they're the ones that have given me the feedback. They say, you know, today I can take a month's vacation, you mm-hmm. know, for, with, you know, working from home and that's the thing. So we're planning this, this uh, group going to Hawaii to stay there for a month. And he says, this is exciting. We never even considered being able to go to Hawaii ever. So that's the enthusiasm. That's the excitement. That's the payoff is they act, their life has actually changed in a way they didn't imagine it could. Mm-hmm. I like your definition. I didn't get a chance to write it all down, but it, it felt very accessible. Like it wasn't this, I guess, aspirational goal that it seems very, very difficult to obtain, but I just wrote down emotional history and impact negatively impacting us today. When I say accessible, I think we all can examine ourselves and think, okay, there's got to be some of that in me. As opposed to, I've heard some people saying like financial therapy, that's for people. That's not for me. That's for people who who have things wrong. Things like there's a level of, I guess, maybe reactive judgment to the word, but the way you said it, if I feel it just, it bees or it allows us to be accessible to, to be curious, but like, Hey, maybe I can benefit. 
And I think that's really important when people are, are ready and want to all can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. And I, and I think that's what, why it's really important to make it more approachable and saying, you know, it isn't that we're going to establish these goals. It's really about we're going to work on creating a different lifestyle that's more loving and respectful to myself and the people around me. That's what brings the change. And it, it seems like it, it really leveraged this, uh, that self-determination theory of where I start to get agency and can make decisions on my own, where I realize maybe that in the past I was reactive, but now I can control, you know, <laughs> control those reactions. And I would have to say that uh, in someone's quality of life, I can assume when they start to feel more agency around the relationship with money or, or whatever else you're, you're talking with the clients, that really helps them to start living, I guess, I don't know the word, but a better life. I don't want to say better life, but like more content. Well, it's, it's definitely a more content life because the, there's this greater self-confidence. And it, it, because I'm working through these emotional issues that have in the past have really been self-criticism of me and working through those issues, that self-criticism isn't there anymore. And because of that, I can be more open and objective and more open to lots of different ideas. Mm-hmm. So we've been chatting about our past history and how these our emotional history is impacting us sometimes negatively in the present. And we've talked how it's often difficult to lean into that discomfort to look at those <laughs> those unexamined parts of us. Then we get married or we find a partner or we start commingling our money in whatever form it is. I know you've dealt with a lot of couples in resolving their money fights. But if we just zoom out and think for a second, if a lot of us are living an unexamined money story with these negative history of emotions and we go together, I, I, it, it seems to me the odds would be that we would have discomfort with our money with a, a partner. How do you discuss this topic with, with couples who come in who be like, kind of like what you're talking about with that last couple, they're doing this wrong, they're doing this wrong, when really they both aren't going into themselves. <laughs> Well, and that's the, the issue. And, and I don't frame it as they're doing things wrong. They're actually doing things very well based upon the way they were taught. Right, right. And, and what's interesting is, is, is while our parents and, and I as a parent want the best for my kids, I have taught them poorly mm-hmm. because I was taught poorly because I didn't work through the emotions before I had the kids. And so... When we look at it, the first thing is, is, you know, I work with them. It's really important that we do not beat ourselves up or our partner. What are, what we're doing makes a lot of sense when we understand the emotional history of that person. And so it's really about if we're going to walk through this, how do we walk the, through this in an emotionally supportive way rather than a judgmental and critical way? Because when there's guilt and shame, the history remains the same. There is no change. And so this is where when I work with clients, I think that's a real important piece. And I, I share with my clients, if you're feeling guilt and shame to buy me, if I'm doing it, I will apologize and we'll redirect. If you're feeling it and I'm not, that's an invitation to dig deeper because there's some history that's getting triggered there. And that's what we want to look at and explore. It's really about walking with each partner and assess, you know, helping them feel, number one, safe to look at this objectively. 
and saying, both of you are doing really well with what you were taught. How is it working for you? And if it's working well, he's always oh, working well. But my partner says, no, it isn't. I say, right, how do we do this? And sometimes there's ways to work through the issues so that they can really come together. Sometimes it's really about and doing the workaround and saying, how do you guys have common money to pay the you know utilities and everything like that? And how do you have your individual so that you have some of your flexibility and freedom? And so it's dependent. The other thing is, is I like to hear all their definitions about money. I don't know if you ever have done that, but when I do my workshops, I get 50 to 70 definitions. <laughs> None of them are actually the actual definition. Every one of them has always been an emotional connection to money. So what is the definition? Money is anything that we agree has value. What a fascinating concept this money thing is. Hey, how we've yeah. been struggling for 60,000 years as humans. For sure. <laughs> you know, because of all this emotion that gets stirred up around money, earlier you said sometimes talk therapy might not be exactly what we are, only what we need. I know you do a lot of experiment, experiential therapy, whether it's in a couple or on solo. When you're working with clients to help, uncover the emotional history that we have with money. What are some interventions or experiential methods that you use to help people sit with that discomfort? Oh, I, I uh, use money. I, I mean, money is the best, <laughs> best tool in helping people feel the discomfort around money. A good example is give your client $10. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. There's probably like, what? What, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, it, it just what happened. 95% of them are either not going to take it. They're going to keep holding it in their hand. They're going to put it on their lap. They're going to try to give it back to you because they say, this is your money. That's a catalyst to dig deeper. Wow. Yeah. That uh, simple, but yet. I guess that's really triggered or not triggering, tapping into the subconscious of like, whoa, like I didn't even have time to think about this. This is, this is not an, my brain's like, this is not a normal experience. Right. You know, the intuitive experiential, you know, you really have to be able to read the client to see what, which one is going to work. And, and so you don't go too deep because you don't want to trigger them. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this one is a simpler, but I, I did one real money exercise in one of my workshops and we never got through the whole exercise because it was so so triggering for all the participants i had a lot of work that workshop you know mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing and so it's really it's really important to be able to know where your client is at and knowing which exercise is going to be most helpful and effective and that's where the intuitive experiential piece comes in mm. that's what what i specialize Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You did say intuitive in your in your online. And so that's you just listening very well and trying to understand the client so you know what intervention is most appropriate at that time. Sure. Basically, listening to the words that are spoken and unspoken, watching their body movement, watching their body language, also connecting with their expressed and unexpressed feelings. Because even if they're not expressing them, you know, in a visceral way, the, the feelings can be 
expressed and still present. What a fascinating concept in this day and age, listening to hear someone and really listening to understand. I think in a world that we are just always competitively talking, trying to think about what we're going to say next, this is a lost art. And how much, how much do you learn from your clients just from that, that process you described there? Well, I, I learn lots. I mean, quite frankly, I learned this process from my clients, for starters because the feedback thing they gave and that type of thing. But what I will tell you is you don't have to say anything. And I can, I can find work to work with just by what your body is saying. Because about 90% of all communication is nonverbal. So when I have a person that's very quiet or they say, you can't get my husband to speak at all. They're surprised when I'm able to pull words out of them just by what their body says. So the curiosity in me is wondering, what would he say about me right now? <laughs> what I would say is uh, you're very inquisitive. You demonstrate a lot of intelligence. And there's this, this part of you that's not as, as confident. Your, your body movements and that sort of thing. And you, the way you're looking, the way you're, you're trying to pose the questions. I see that there's this little hesitation. I don't know what you think about that. Nailed it. So remember I talked about Mr. Shy? Mm -hmm. There's a part of me who is saying, or Mr. Shy, he's like, what are you doing trying to get in a conversation with a guy who's been doing this for so many years and you're a financial planner and talking about money and emotions, just start talking about portfolio constructions to him. So there, yeah, there is a part of me that I've been really enjoying diving into this work and learned a lot about human behavior myself and but yet, when I when I see your background, I wasn't actually consciously aware of that. But you you were correct. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, and hopefully, you see in that observation, the goal is it's just an observation. It's not a judgment. It's not a criticism. And hopefully, you can see that and feel that way, so you could say, "Yeah, it's true." Because if someone feels judged or criticized by it, they're going to shut down. They're going to invalidate mm -hmm. it. They're going to twist it. Three years ago, I probably would have been like shut down. But no, I, I actually see it. And maybe this is just over-optimism mine. Is like, you know what? It's fine. You can be in conversation because you said inquisitive and intelligent. So I was like, ah, oh, you know what? It's okay. Even if I don't know everything, I'm not pretending like I do. So I actually, I, I really enjoyed that feedback. And, and I'll leave it in the recording too. <laughs> <laughs> Good. In your book, Finding Emotional Freedom, before I started to learn about Mr. Shy inside of myself, I thought I, I knew about emotions and feelings. In university, we read the emotional intelligent book. So I, I just chalked it up that I was emotionally intelligent. I realized that I, I, I wasn't good at that and I avoided uh, my feelings. And in your book, I thought it was really, really interesting how the central theme is around finding like your emotional freedom through recognizing our feelings. When it comes to money or anything, because money can be replaced to so many different variables around our emotions and feelings, why do we often ignore or deflect our feelings to get that immediate relief? Because it definitely gives us immediate relief, but we're really prolonging, I guess, lasting change that's going to benefit us. Why is our initial instinct to just ignore and deflect? To do that, I'm going to talk about the brain a little bit. So the brain. As, as many people think that our conscious brain is involved, you know, we know everything about us. I remember before I got in recovery, I thought, you know, why do I go to therapy? I already know myself. <laughs> you know? 
And I went to therapy and I realized I don't know myself. And, and, and I share that our conscious brain is involved in about 2 million pieces of information a second. And we consider that's not a bitter bite. It's a lot of information. Okay. Our subconscious is involved in over 4 billion pieces of information a second. So that's why the marketing industry markets emotion, not logic. To get into the piece that you're talking about is the how does the brain work and the emotional piece and wars work. We have two parts of the brain I've come to appreciate, and that is the limbic system. That's the oldest, most archaic part of the brain. It's where our fight, flight, and freeze syndrome resides. It's also where our true feelings reside. And what's interesting, we connect with that. We, we have our, our true feelings intact. We have a natural defense mechanism that's designed to protect us, and we make much healthier decisions. But we also have this other part called the cortex, which is on both sides of the limbic system, and it, it's connected to the emotional superhighway of the, via the amygdala. And then what happens is, is the cortex, while it's designed to protect us, it's all everything it has been taught. And this is the part of the brain that has taught, been taught not to feel. So what happens is, is, is I might feel sad, and the cortex, the part I call the trauma child, says, we can't feel sad. Let's get anxious. Let's get angry. Let's get busy. Let's get involved in any addiction we can, any noise we can, anything we can do to keep our subconscious active so we don't feel that sadness. And that's that immediate gratification piece that you're talking about. What's interesting is most of that immediate gratification also is the part that creates all the chaos in our life. You know, you ever say something or do something, you say, God, what was I thinking or doing? You know, that's that insocortex that creates it. Because it doesn't care about our outcomes that way. It cares about not feeling that sadness. And this is a pattern that we've been taught. And that's why when we get into the true feelings and get to that sadness and actually have that emotional release on that sadness to erase that tape erases that tape in the insect cortex, the trauma child. And that's where the change occurs. Thank you. That was a great explanation. And I mean, as you're saying that, I could see why when we're feeling that, if we go back to money, when we might overspend, get upset at our spouse, or even if, if we're more on the scarcity side, go and lock down and lock all our bank accounts so no money can get out. And then notice it's not the logic that's in mm-hmm. any of those financial distances that the emotional pattern that we've created. And when we're in autopilot, our trauma child is the part of the brain that's actually in charge. And the reason is it's because it's got special nerves called spindle nerves that gets us in action before we ever have time to actually contemplate or consider what you're doing. Well, Dave, I, you are a wealth of knowledge. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I have one last question for you that I ask everybody. Let's assume you're at end of life and whatever age that is, and you're sitting on a front porch. It could be wherever, wherever brings you peace. It could be South Dakota. could be looking at an ocean, meadows, mountain. But you're sitting on this front porch and you get your notepad out and decide to write your children's children a letter on what you learned on how to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? The more you connect with your emotional truth, the greater happiness and success you will have. Because it's not about the money. It's not about having millions. Because I know people that have very little money. 
and are very happy with their finances. I know people that have millions of dollars that are unhappy. At the end of the day, it's how do I connect with emotional truths? Thank you. Another great answer. And I think it summarizes our whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today. For listeners who say who might feel like they want to lean into some of that discomfort, acknowledging that we have this these emotions attached to our money, where would you send them to learn more about Dave, your website, your books, and so forth? I mean, I have two websites. One is jetsoncounseling.com, if you will, and that's where I talk about my counseling and that type of thing. I have another one called Living True Incorporated. That's where I talk about if people want me to come to talk with them, if they would like to do have me do a training for them, if they would like to have me do a workshop, that's Living True Incorporated. It's actually the same phone number at both sites because I haven't had time to create any separation yet because I'm still in infancy stage of developing that. As far as the books are concerned, you can go to my websites and, and it'll direct you right there. Amazon, Finding Emotional Freedom, that's where you're going to find that one. The most. There is that an e-reader available on that. Don't have it in audio at this time. My Setting True Boundaries book that you can get anywhere. You know, you can order it anywhere, but you can go to my website as well. I have the audio on that. I just don't have the digital on that yet because I've been too busy to get that set up, if you will. You've been doing the work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Enjoying life. Th- that too. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave as much as I did. Before you head out for the day, the week, can you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? I know I've asked you twice, but I would greatly appreciate it. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life it's just the wind in the sea